Welcome to the Center of Everywhere podcast, where we explore stories of rural Minnesotans who are making a difference in their communities. Rural isn't in the middle of nowhere. It is in the center of everywhere. Hello, and welcome to the Center of Everywhere. On today's episode, we are talking about differential privacy in the U.S. Census Bureau. Now, I know. I know what you're thinking. What the heck is differential privacy? And man, that does not sound very interesting. But I tell you it is, and it's something you're probably going to hear about over the next few years as the U.S. Census Bureau implements this kind of framework. And this framework is essentially a set of tools and strategies to help protect individual data and within the Census Bureau tables that they produce. So, for example, let's say you're looking at a census block on the decennial census and you're looking up uh, age cohort, the number of people that might be Caucasian in that age cohort might be, you know, a few. And imagine if you could be able to identify like, oh, I actually know who that person is, right? That's what this is meant to kind of prohibit from happening. Um, the Census Bureau pretty much has a, a legal obligation or a policy obligation to do everything possible to not allow that to happen. Thus enter differential privacy, which is the new set of strategies and the new framework that the Census Bureau is implementing to stop this. Joining me today is David Van Riper who works at the Minnesota Population Center and is the Director of Spatial Analysis at the Institute for Social Research and Data Innovation. He's been one of the leading researchers looking into the impacts of differential privacy, uh, particularly on its impacts on data accuracy. Uh, he's also a member with me on the Minnesota's for the American Community, Community Survey, which is a group focused on educating the public to increase awareness, support, and participation in accurate census data. Uh, David, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about this. So before we launch into differential privacy and explaining that framework, perhaps you could kind of tell us first, like, what? how did we get to this point? The U.S. Census Bureau has always had to kind of keep an eye on people's data and keeping it confidential um, and not being able to be identified in their products that they release, their data tables. So where have we been and, you know, how did we get here? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, as you said, the Census Bureau has always taken their responsibility to protect the um, privacy and confidentiality of all individual respondents to the to the decennial census or any survey that the Census Bureau um, um, does for different groups. Uh, and historically, they've used two different strategies for protecting privacy. So, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the Bureau used a method called suppression. So if a particular geographic unit had too few individuals or too few households, uh, that whereas publishing statistics about those individual individuals or households would uh, allow it, people to re-identify them, they would simply report no data, no counts, no medians, no nothing for that particular geographic unit. And that suppression effectively um, uh, protects people's privacy. Now, the, the drawback to that is we don't know anything about the, the demographic characteristics of that geographic unit. So we lose out on on you know useful information about that that unit. Yeah, we see that quite in, a bit, particularly in rural data, right? Like particularly I was in rural actually areas, just using yeah. I was just using the quarterly census of employment and wages, the QCEW, to look up how many um uh home builders there were. So people that owned a, a business or a firm that was in home construction. And then particularly in our counties that are kind of considered entirely rural or in most rural mm -hmm. counties, there were a lot of 
kind of weird data points. Like one year there would be like, oh, 25 and then zero, even though there probably wasn't zero, right? It just got to a certain threshold where they just had to suppress the data. So we see that yep. quite a bit. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think right, and 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 particularly rural areas, particularly um, small population subgroups, are, are going to be most at risk of of suppression. Uh, in the population censuses, starting in 1990, the bureau uh, adapted a new strategy because they were realizing and finding they had to suppress more and more data, making the decennial census less and less useful for researchers and policymakers. The new strategy is called swapping. So in swapping, what they would do is they would identify households at risk of re-identification. And they didn't really, they, they don't actually talk about what they mean by at risk. We don't really know what their parameters are, but essentially they would identify households in a particular geographic unit that were at risk. They would then try to find a similar household somewhere else within the same state. So they would try to restrict, they, they, they did restrict their swapping to be within individual states. They would try to find a household. Typically they would match on the number of people in that household. They would try to match on the age and race and sex demographics of the people within that household. And they would simply swap those two households between the geographic units they live in and then create their tabulations. Now, of course, they can't always match on all characteristics, right? So they might get the total count right, but let's say it's a family that has three children, maybe in the true data, two children were female and one child was male. The, the matched household, two children might be male, one child would be female. That's gonna, that's gonna tweak and modify the counts a, a little bit at different, different geographic, for different geographic units. But, but that's what they did. The, the, the great thing about swapping is that um, there's no more suppression. So they could publish statistics for every uh, demographic tabulation for all geographic units. So now we're getting, you know, more suppression and we're getting, uh, you know, data for all of those, all of those cells. And swapping uh, was used from 1990 to, to 2010 uh, for, the for the decennial uh, censuses. Swapping is still used for the American Community Survey. Uh, and, and so that was the that kind of leads us up to the mid 20 teens when everything started to change. So, yeah, so in, it's okay. interesting. I mean, when uh, for our listeners, you know, a lot of us data users uh, like at Center for Rural Policy and Development, Minnesota Population Center, you know, we've kind of known about these tools and these strategies for years. And we just kind of we didn't know, like you can read, you know, if anybody's read through the technical documents of these, the Census Bureau, right? Like the really thick packet and you go through all of how the variables are defined and how in, the data is even collected. Like it's super interesting. The suppression tools and some of those things were never really clearly explained because if you start clearly explaining those, then that gives somebody the tool set to kind of unravel and start identifying households yeah. again, right? So everybody just kind of left it alone and we just accepted yeah. that, yeah, we're going to say this is pure hundred percent data, particularly with the decennial census, but knowing there's always a little bit of inaccuracy. There has to be, right? Yeah. Um, and, and there's always, yeah. And there's always inaccuracy, right? And so not only, right. So, so there's other sources of error in the, even in the decennial census, right? We treat it as this gold standard, you know, true count of the population, but we know, right. That um, not everyone gets counted in the, uh, 
in the decennial census, right? There's overcounts and undercounts of particular demographic subgroups. Um, we know that there's there's probably geocoding errors, right? They try to place a household in a particular census block. Well, there's uncertainty in the geocoding process. And so maybe a household is placed in the wrong census block solely because of, of inaccuracies in the, in, the, in the geocoding data. So all of these are kind of sources of uncertainty. Very hard to unpack how these sources contribute to the counts, but we also don't necessarily have other data sources that cover the full population, right? So you kind of treated it as the gold standard because we didn't, we don't have anything else to, to work from. It, it really is the gold standard, no matter kind of how inaccurate the, the, the underlying counts are. Right. And there's always um, been uh, in the, in the kind of global scheme of things, there are nefarious actors, right? That yeah. would love yeah. to get their hands on uh, identified data and be able to know more about people than they should know. Right. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I like kind of, maybe it's a terrible metaphor, but right. Like, you know, one country comes up with a bomb. Well, then the enemy <laughs> country is going to come up with a bigger bomb. And so then you got to react yep. and build a bigger bomb. And so you kind of have this evolution happening at the census bureau where they're coming up with new strategies and our computers are getting faster. Our algorithms are becoming more sophisticated uh, and the nefarious actors also are becoming significantly more uh, uh, sophisticated in terms of being mm -hmm. able to implement really interesting algorithms and things like that, uh, that yeah. can do some pretty incredible things. And so the U.S. Census Bureau has kind of had to stay on top of this. So they've been testing these methods, checking in on it. And that kind of leads us into the next evolution, right, which is differential privacy. And maybe you could talk about, yeah, talk about the story on the U.S. Census yeah. Bureau, kind of how they got to this point, you know, of talking about it. And then we can talk a little bit about, right, what exactly is differential yeah. privacy? Yeah, so in the in the mid 20 teens, like 2015, 2016, I don't, I don't have the exact dates, but the Census Bureau was starting to realize that that it was possible that their prior disclosure avoidance techniques, the general set of things like suppression and swapping and differential privacy, falls under this kind of um, category called disclosure avoidance techniques or disclosure avoidance systems. Um, and, and they were starting to realize that maybe the swapping and other disclosure avoidance techniques were no longer kind of protecting the uh, the, the privacy and confidentiality of the, of the data. And they did a fairly large internal experiment where they created the individual level census responses from published data tables. So they took data published for census blocks and for census tracts. And they essentially made individual records. Now, these records did not have names on them. They didn't have phone numbers on them. They simply were like um, male, white alone, not Hispanic, and then an age. You know, they, they, they kind of guesstimated at the age. And they recreated the entire population of the U.S. from these published tables. And then they looked to see whether or not, and they had block level identifiers. So that's their key part here is they had a census block ID on each of these records. And then they essentially took those kind of recre reconstructed individuals and they tried to match them up with commercially available data that had been purchased to help them with the 2010 census operations. And they, they matched these on, on block identifier, they matched on sex, and they matched on age. And the Census Bureau found 
that they could match a, a fairly large fraction of the, the reconstructed records onto the commercial data products. Then they took that, that, that set of matches into inside the Census Bureau firewall. And from the commercial data, they could actually get the name of individuals, right? Because the commercial data products just have our names. They bought credit, credit reporting data or other, other types of, um, of, of data that, that uh, private sector groups uh, uh, collect and publish. They then took those data within, inside the firewall and they matched it up to the the confidential responses from 2010. And the Bureau is allowed to do this, right? They are, they are the custodians of those data. So they, they matched it up and they matched on, uh, again, on, on name uh, and uh, on block identifier and on uh, age and on uh, sex. And in doing that, they essentially claimed to have re-identified 17% of the respondents to the 2010 decennial census uh, using these, these different products. And that 17% was orders of magnitude larger than any other uh, similar experiment that, that, that they had done. And this finding led them to pursue new methods of disclosure avoidance for the 2020 decennial census. And they chose the concept called differential privacy as the the way that they were going to implement or the 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 algorithm the method behind the the technique that they use for um for protecting the privacy of the 2020 uh decennial census respondents and this well, this David, this concept in, the, yeah. sorry before you go into um the framework just a little bit more about their experiment you said this is, you know, orders of magnitude more than any other previous experiment was able to conduct. Have there been other experiments and tests trying to essentially um, recreate their um, recreate their methodology uh, to see if like others could have similar results? You know, mostly a lot of the times, you know, in the sciences and when we do our research, right, you make it so other people can recreate and try and get right. the same results as you did. Has that ever been done? I have not seen that done, right? So the most we could do, right, is a group could recreate the 2010 individual responses and maybe purchase other commercial data sets and, and do that linkage. Now, the one thing the Census Bureau has that no outside person outside the Bureau has is they have access to that confidential responses, right? So they have access to the names uh, and, and, and the addresses uh, and whatnot. We as outside people can never get access to those. So we can never, even if we did the commercial to published um, uh, joints, we can't validate or, or verify that our um, uh, re-identified re cases are, are actually re-identified. We, we have no idea of proving that we've successfully re-identified a person. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. They're to get access to that data, you would have to be an employee. Yeah, I totally understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's not that's not good. so. I I have not heard of other other um, groups or anybody else kind of pursuing that that line of research. Okay, okay. Well, so then, yeah, we get into their kind of solution to the problem they feel like they've identified. So, yeah, differential privacy. Yeah, so differential privacy uh, comes out of the computer science. Uh, 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 field and it was developed in the um, mid to late 2000s by computer scientists at Harvard uh, and uh, Microsoft Research, and effectively 
differential privacy is really an accounting framework. It's a way to keep track of the um, information about individuals that's leaked every time statistics are published. And so it's a, it's, it's a mathematical framework that, that is an accounting framework, essentially. And it is it, it operates on the idea that you can you can keep track of how much information is leaked and set, set a threshold, right? We don't want any more than X amount of information leaked when we publish our statistics. So we need to then implement some methods to make sure that we don't exceed that that threshold. And the way that that's typically implemented is via uh, the process of what I call noise injection or noise infusion. So they add random noise to the statistics in order to protect the confidentiality of the people that are within those within those statistics. And, and it's it's incredibly mathematical. I don't fully understand all of the math that, that goes into it. Um, but effectively, they they use this noise injection uh, parameters and technique to, to protect protect that. And essentially, the the more noise that's infused or injected, the more privacy protected the data are, the less noise that's infused or injected, the less the privacy is protected. And it's really a um, a game of choosing along that kind of uh, continuum, you know, where do you want to set that threshold, you know, to, to, you know, to make sure that we're protecting privacy, but also making sure the data are, are useful, right? Because of course, the more noise that gets injected into data, the less accurate they are, the less accurate the data are, the less useful they're going to be for scientists and policymakers and local governments and all the various entities that use these these data products. So it's interesting when you say this is a, like an accounting framework. I think, you know, we've had discussions about this with the uh, Minnesotans uh, for the American Community Survey uh, data group, where what's interesting about this framework, one of the really positive things about this is that we can actually track and it's very transparent in terms of how much error slash noise is in the data we're looking at that's kind of nice because we didn't know that before right that right. was all kind of yes. under the hood secret we knew it was there we didn't know how much but we trusted it and it always looked you know met the eye test right you would look at some numbers yeah. and be like yeah, yeah that seems totally reasonable um but now with this framework like you said we have all these parameters these levers that we can essentially push and turn and pull turn knobs to make yep. make it less accurate, more accurate, um, and go with that trade off of like, yeah, it might be less accurate, but it's more protected, versus you know, uh, more accurate but less protected. Um, and so that's a that's a tough trade off. And I think it, right now, uh, just from the conversations we're having, it seems like the Census Bureau right now that's where they're at is like, let's yes. figure out these parameters. Can we do this together? And that's some of the work you've been kind of looking at and leading on uh, for Minnesota. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So essentially, what is it? the one of the new things about this is all of these decisions, all these parameter settings have to be made, right? So the Census Bureau essentially has to say, we are going to protect census block level data more than we're going to protect track level data. So we're going to make block data more uh, less accurate, but we're going to make tracts or counties more accurate. That has to be decided upon before the 
algorithm is ever applied to the to the data. So we have to foreground all of these decisions and, and deal with all these trade-offs. So the Census Bureau is out there talking to, you know, a wide variety of stakeholders. They talk to the National Congress for American Indians about what this means for the tribal um, groups in America. They talk to the various state um, agencies who use these data. They talk to the Centers for Disease Control who, who use these data. And essentially the Bureau has to take in all the feedback, right? All the groups that want my geographic unit or my demographic characteristic, age or sex or race, to be to be super accurate and they have to balance all of these trade-offs against one another to come up with this final set of parameters that will then be applied to the applied to the um to the final published statistics so we here at the minnesota population center for the last three years have done a lot of work uh analyzing and providing feedback on what the Census Bureau calls demonstration data. So what the Census Bureau has been doing is they've been publishing um, data sets where they've applied this new method to 2010 decennial census data and publishing those, those statistics so that we can compare those with the data that were actually published for 2010. And we can then compare, okay, I have a count for, you know, Candiohi County from the 2010 decennial census. I have a count for Candiohi County from one of these demonstration products. How much does it differ? You know, what threshold, right? Is it a 5% difference, a 10% difference where I'm going to start to really question the accuracy and utility of those data? And we've been both processing and disseminating these demonstration products as well as trying to analyze what this means for the the 2020 census when it comes out yeah and so how are you feeling about the findings <laughs> so what 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 happened and then so let's, let's talk about how this has gone over the last three years so the bureau published their first demonstration product in, in fall of 2019 and they've subsequently published eight different eight additional or seven additional products and over time, what's they, they've changed two different dimensions. So at first, they had a fixed um, fixed amount of what they call the privacy loss budget. This is how much the data can be be modified. And for the first kind of six products, they kept that privacy loss budget fixed and just tweaked to the parameter settings in the algorithm. And what we saw is in the first data product that came out. Uh, the user community, including us here at Minnesota, were incredibly critical. The data were were highly inaccurate. We were seeing, you know, counts that were off by 30, 40, 50 percent for cities in, a, in in the U.S., which is which is not great, right? That that put very low confidence in that in this method and those data sets. Well, over time, the bureau has modified the algorithm and tweaked a lot of parameters. And over time, we've seen the statistics between the demonstration products and 2010 kind of converge upon one another. We're seeing the, particularly for total population counts, the total population counts for cities and counties and census tracts are, are getting fairly close together, right? They're getting in, they're becoming more and more similar. But over time, the other thing that the Census Bureau realized is that this, this privacy loss budget they were using to kind of control that, that, 
inaccuracy was far too small. Users were going to be unhappy with the accuracy and utility of the data if they kept it at that. So they have increasing that privacy loss budget by about a factor of five since they started working on the demonstration products. And that, that increase has really, I think, accounted for a large improvement in the accuracy of the, of the, of the statistics. The other thing that we've seen is that they've changed a lot of their algorithm, which is great. They've been very, they've been responsive to people. And what they've been targeting is that people at first were agitating for arguing for total population counts need to be more accurate. So they made those more accurate. But because we have this fixed to work with, when total population becomes more accurate, something else has to be less accurate kind of by definition. And so maybe the age breakdowns aren't as accurate or the sex breakdowns or the age by sex breakdowns. And so even though the general budget has increased, total population counts are converging to the point now where I think the total population counts are, are fairly reasonable and are, are mostly useful for applications. Those, those breakdowns, right, by age, by sex, by race, haven't really necessarily haven't kept up as well with the um, with the uh, total population counts, but um, but they, they have improved over time. You know, to the point where I think a, a lot of groups are are you know still people have their use cases that they're still unhappy. They might not be getting the accuracy they want for. People have kind of come around on kind of the the the, the biggest categories of data being fairly reasonable for, for use cases. And, and of course, I can't speak for everybody, right? There's, there's thousands of use cases for these data out there, right? And, you know, um, um, it, it's going to vary a lot. Uh, before I go on, I want to say one thing, and this is where the rural piece comes in. Rural areas are, are, are going to struggle more under this new um, disclosure avoidance technique than they did in the past. The reason I say that is because rural areas just tend to have small population counts, right? There's just not as many people living there. The, 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 the swapping didn't really impact the total population counts. That didn't make any change to it. The noise injection does. And so if you have a small population and you add or subtract people from it, um, uh, on a proportional basis, it's going to have a bigger impact in, in rural rural areas, uh, in, in larger cities, right here in, in, in Minneapolis, right. Um, a, a noise error of a hundred doesn't really matter. We've got 300,000 people here in Minneapolis. That's not a big deal. If you're in a city, right in rural Minnesota, and you only have 600 people, an error of 50 or 60 is a 10%, 10% deviation. Uh, that makes it a lot harder for those areas to know what's what's really going on and you need to have some statistical sophistication to, to kind of understand the, the implications here uh, and I think this particular new methodology does put rural America at a little bit more, at a disadvantage because they might not have the resources to analyze these data um, and if the data don't quite look as the, as expected, you know, it might it might lower the confidence in the in the you know utility of those data products. You know, one one example I think that kind of grounds it a little bit is thinking about 
we talk a lot about rural housing right now, kind of have a housing shortage. And so there's a lot of smaller communities kind of talking about, all right, let's maybe build some patio style homes for people that are older households that are in their single family homes. We kind of want them to move over to more transition housing. Uh, so it's not retirement community or anything like that, but, you know, low maintenance, one floor patio style home. A developer might have to look and be like, all right, let me look at the age cohort breakdown in this community, trying to yeah. figure out how many units do we need to build? Plus or minus 10% is hundreds of thousands of dollars in terms of right. developing uh, a development. And for a small town, that is a big, big, big deal. Um, right. And, and I think and I, what I worry about is that the developers will just simply skip those towns. Yeah. They, if they don't Absolutely. have it. They don't have a sense of like, oh, like even building a four or eight unit development, right, which would only house, you know, eight, 10, 16 individuals like. It matters for the people living in those communities, and if the if the developer doesn't have any confidence that that's the right, amount, and they pass those places by when they need that housing, right? That that you you do that in a place like Minneapolis or St. Paul or the Twin Cities, right? You've got there's more fungibility, right? You can you can find people to move in, right? In some of the rural rural areas, it, it, it might make them to make different decisions, which hurts the tax base, right? Which hurts the property tax revenues for these places. And 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 I, I'll be interested to kind of track what that looks like over time. Yeah, right. So, you know, you talk a little bit about this kind of uh, privacy loss budget. It's kind of a really interesting way to put it. And like mm -hmm. a metaphor would be like, if you had a hundred dollars to spend on groceries and that groceries are air, <laughs> right? Yep. 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 Do we go to the, do we buy the bulk section and put a whole bunch of air into that? Or do we add air to the subgroups? You know, do we buy a whole bunch of smaller things, right? Like that's kind of how yep. I put it is like, where are we yep. placing the air? So yep. when you talk a little bit about that, you say, oh, our total population statistics or our data tables are looking pretty good. Um, mm -hmm. Some of the subgroups and sub-geographic areas start to get a little bit more dicey. Um, I'm curious, can you explain a little bit if I'm looking at a table, let's say here in New London, Minnesota, and I'm looking at it by age cohort, you know, mm -hmm. they have the 18 to 24, 25 to 30, you know, age cohorts. And at the mm -hmm. end, it should add up to the total population in yep. New London. Correct. Um, so you would have a statistics that says this is the total population in New London. And then here's the age cohorts. And if I add all those age cohorts, it should equal the city of New London. Is that still happening? Like, is that still going yes. to occur? Yes. Yep. Yep. So the the they, they are uh, the the, uh, the the Bureau and others call this kind of internal consistency. Right. So if you have a total population count, and it's a thousand. Right. And we have 10 or we have we have males and females right within that. And we add up the, the 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 count of males and the count of females. It will equal one thousand. Like that is that is can, that that is uh, um, maintained. But what happens then is that if you have this this thousand person right total, and then you've got the 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 males and females underneath that are the age cohorts. What happens is those groupings get up or down, right? And then they'll still add up to a thousand. But, you know, you might get, you know, one increasing more and one decreasing more, you know, the, 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 the net error is zero, right, between those two cohorts, the two, two groupings, but each individual cohort can vary by, you know, 
a, a decent amount from the, the the truer the true value. Yeah, and so essentially, um, what you would end up seeing is, you know, in reality, you might have let's say 50, 18 to twenty four year olds, um, but they add an error of twenty five, so it says seventy five. Yeah. But then twenty five to thirty, they got to make up that error of increasing twenty five, so they create yep. decrease that by twenty five, right? Like, and that's yep. simple. Yep. you know, yep. it's not right, right. That's very simple. So what you what you what you would kind of end up with to be their spiky counts, right? Like something's high, but something's too low, or you know, consistently, you know, maybe for three age cohorts in a row, everything's a little too high, and then three cohorts in a row, everything's a little too low, right? But everything has to has to average out. But that's effectively what that what that. I remember looking at um, you know uh, there was a presentation I was looking at where they were talking about some of the analysis and I remember one if anybody's ever seen those population pyramids right so it's the age cohorts yep. and you got male on one side female on one side and it always ends up the data almost like if uh, it would look like a pyramid right like as you, yeah, increase, yeah, yeah, you have yeah. less and less population. Yeah. Um, but what was interesting is if you did a subgroup, and I think this was, I think, a Native American population in, in Southwest America somewhere. And like, there was these, like, it should look like a pyramid. And there was these jagged bars, just like out of crazy, like absolutely doesn't meet the eye test at all. And yep. that was yep. essentially some of that data being entered in somewhere else and taken away from somewhere yep. else. And it just got yep. weird, random and stuff. What the, and, um, the the census bureau essentially their their argument would be well you know if you if you average out two cohorts right so if, if 10 to 14 and 15 to 19 one's too high one's too low if you add those together right 10 to 19 you end up with a accurate count compared to the truth the, the drawback to that though is what if you really need that 10 to 14 year old count or you really want to use that zero to four year old count for a particular policy or a particular program right you you can't average it out right you, you have to use it as as is and that leads you to maybe making a misallocation of resources or making a wrong decision about right the number of teachers we need to hire for the incoming kindergarten students over the next four years if if that if we're off too high or too low that leads to a, a, a you know an increase of teachers being hired and then no students show up or fewer students show up. You've you've misallocated those those monies to to the uh, to the the school, right? And 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 it makes it a little tricky to know how to how to interpret that. Well, and there's also this issue of credibility, right? So when somebody that maybe isn't a major data user, but is looking at the statistics or looking at the numbers and just being like, this is way off. Like I just know this isn't right. It kind of then adds this um, lack of support or kind of like, like, you know, this feeling of like, I can really trust what this data analyst is doing. Like at the Center for Real Policy and Development, if they were looked at some of that data, they'd be like, well, this number is way off. So I don't trust anything yeah. that they're publishing here because that's way off. Right. So that's part of the issue, too, is, you know, for data users. Yeah, we may get some of this, but when we start to then. Um, talk to people that aren't hardcore data users that are looking at us to help them make decisions and make accurate decisions. It's, it's tough and it's not a good look and it's hard to yeah. explain. Oh, this is differential privacy. <laughs> right. And I think it, you know, right. In some respects, like sometimes I kind of feel like, Oh, this is, 
this is expanding the industry for people who do this kind of analysis because there's going to be need more and more explanation and communication. But it um, a really challenging technical thing to get your head wrapped around. And if you you know we've I've had the luxury of really diving deep into this over the last three years. Very few people are going to have that um, have that uh, the ability to do that. Uh, and so it um, puts a lot of puts the onus on these analysts and on these, you know, different people to understand what's going on, figure out how to translate that for uh, uh, an audience who's less uh, knowledgeable about the data. And then I think the hardest part is figuring out how do you make decisions based on the data that are going to come out. And I think we're going to spend the next 10 years, right, figuring out, you know, how do we use these data? Um, because uh, I, I didn't say this before, this is by far the largest ever publicly available data set protected by differential privacy. No other entity, no statistical agency, no other data set has ever been produced using this. So this is really the um, something we have to use and learn from, but we've never seen anything like this. So we don't have a lot of experience analyzing these types of data. So we're all, all gonna have to learn on the fly as these data come out and they're used for different decisions. So that kind of leads us to this question about the future, right? So I think we've all kind of accepted the 2020 decennial census, which has been delayed. If everybody's wondering, there's some tables have been published, most have not yet, uh, particularly in the subgroup, because I. I they're still trying to figure out this algorithm, differential privacy. Yep. And so just so yep. everybody knows, the 2020 census will have differential privacy in it. And all of us users on the ground will have to learn like pretty quickly, all right, what data can we use and what data, data should, would, should we be suspicious of and being able to communicate mm -hmm. that out. And so I think we'll have future podcasts kind of dedicated to that <laughs> idea. But looking forward then too, it's also this, all right, let's learn from what we're doing here. How do we make it make sure, because the Census Bureau said they would like to implement this even into the American Community Survey. So people maybe not super familiar, the U.S. Census Bureau has a couple different survey products that they do. Uh, the two main ones that we use quite a bit at the Center for Rural Policy and Development, obviously the Decennial Census, uh, which everybody I feel like has pretty much knows about. But then there's the American Community Survey, which is one that we use a lot because it has all of the economic data and this really kind of granular information that the decennial census currently doesn't have. You know, the decennial census is population and households and housing units. That's about it. Um, where with the American Community Survey, we can get a lot more information in terms of household income, median home income, number of pe uh, the number of people working or employed, the industry mm -hmm. and occupation they're employed in. This is very cool stuff. Now, for people that aren't familiar, the American Community Survey comes out every year. And in rural areas, they kind of do this where they take the last five years and average that together to kind of give the current estimates um, because of sampling. So they go out and they, they don't survey like a decennial census where every household, every housing unit gets a census, uh, a survey to fill out. American Community Survey uses uh, uh, sampling. So one out of every, ooh, I don't even know what it is. Is it 20 in rural areas? 20. Every 20? It's, yeah. it's 20 every, it's 20, it's one out of 20 na nationwide. It is. Okay. I didn't know if they, I always thought maybe they well, they sampled a little bit harder in rural areas, they, but they don't, huh? They, 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 they do. So the, it, it's much more complicated than that, but, but at the, at the national level, they want a one in 20 
uh, sample every year, but they do oversample in some areas because they they need to get more responses in in certain areas. But in general, they want a one in twenty every every sure. year. Well, and so you know when you have sampling, you have automatic error, right? There's going to be error with anything you're sampling. If you ever watch, you know, if anybody ever looks at a poll, it's always like, oh, this yep. candidate's leading by, you know, is is polling at. 48% plus or minus five, right? Um, and so you see this in the American Community Survey statistics and their estimates that they publish. It always has a margin of error published with it. And as a data user, we always take this into account. And, you know, everybody kind of has their own threshold. At Center for Rural Policy Development, we kind of, we're right around, is it at least within 10% of the estimate, the error, right? And then we find it, okay, we can use that. But there's plenty of variables in rural areas where it's 25, 30, 50 oh, yeah. percent of the estimate. I remember looking yep. up one. Yep. I think it was uh, I used to live in Hancock and Stevens County has a University of Minnesota Morris. And I think one time I looked up like how many what's the number of people that have a Ph.D. like uh, living in Stevens County. Right. Because they have a college there. And it was like 52 plus or minus 50 you know, or yep. something like that. Right. Yep. Like totally yep. not useful. We really don't know. Um, so. Yep. You know, one of the worries we have moving forward is if they implement differential privacy into the American Community Survey, which is already has some accuracy issues, is this just going to compound that issue? So the it, it definitely has the chance to. And this is where we we don't actually know a lot about the Bureau's plans for differential privacy in the American Community Survey. Uh, in 2019, the director, the acting director at the time, Ron Jarman, stated that they would not implement differential privacy until 2020 for the ACS until 2025 at the earliest. So that's still, as it turns out, now closer to 2025 than we than we are to 2019. Um, uh, and so um, I know that there are as a research team who's involved in trying to figure out how do you implement differential privacy for the American Community Survey. Um, we haven't seen any sample data, demonstration data about what that looks like. Um, the ACS is substantially more complicated to implement differential privacy for compared to the decennial census because the, uh, the techniques that are used for things like income and housing value and rents uh, are um, much more challenging than when you're just dealing with counts of people by by some unit. And so, um, uh, and there's a lot more variables, right? There's a lot more questions on the ACS. So um, we don't really know. Now, the, the one thing I keep hoping uh, is that um, to inject just a small amount of noise in order to protect privacy when you already have a sample, right? The sampling error, is already there, you know, can you do a little bit less noise? But, you know, this is a classic case of like, until I see it, until I see demonstration data or, or I get more insights, you know, you kind of have to withhold judgment on, on, on what it's going to do for the utility of the, of the data. Um, the, um, the, 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 the 2010, 2020 experiences, you know, if we experience the same thing we do for ACS as we did for the decennial, right? Where we went through eight demonstration products over almost three years now. Um, you know, 
We haven't seen a demo product yet for ACS. I, I don't see them getting this done in 2025. Um, but you know, I don't. I don't really know what that what that means for for a, for a timeline. And 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 I haven't heard anything about that in the, in the recent past. Yeah, it'll be interesting moving forward on how exactly they think this needs to be done. I'd be curious too if they would do some research on whether they could actually recreate that experiment they did on the 2010 census uh, framework. If they did that on ACS data, would they come up with a similar 17%? I can't right. I I, believe it. I just, I don't know, but. I have no idea. Yeah, right. I, I really don't know what you would like, you know. Uh, yeah, the other thing you already have is they're only published under the block group, right? Like that, you, you don't get blocked. In the decennial world, census block level data is incredibly disclosive because they're so small. Right, or they tend to be quite small. Block groups are, by definition, much bigger than census blocks. Um, but at the same time, right, think about rural areas, right? Rural towns can be small, right? We have a lot of 100, 200, 300, 400 person towns that's much smaller than a block group in, in yeah. census parlance, yeah. and so, um, uh, but but right, the, that, that sampling uncertainty has to be you know yielding some kind of um. Uh, you know, we, we have uncertainty in, in those reconstructed records, but I, I haven't heard of them doing another experiment on ACS specifically, um, or, or yeah, they, they're not talking about that as a, what they found. Right, and I know the ACS already uh, continues to do suppression uh, techniques. Yes. We see that all the time yep, in the ACS yep. data, so. Yep, we see that a lot in ACS. So ACS, right, they, they kind of adapt a lot of different disclosure voices, although the suppression is not for not for confidentiality purposes. The suppression is for data quality. Uh, you know, the, the 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 stability of the estimate is just we did we like we have no idea what it is. So we're not going to publish it and give people a false sense of confidence in the in the statistic. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Well, David, do you have um some resources if people wanted to dig into this more? Where might they go to kind of learn about this more? Just Google search differential privacy census bureau or anything else that you can. So we have, we've maintained uh, a few different resources here at, at uh, the Minnesota Population Center. So if you, um, if you Google, say, IPAMS and differential privacy, you'll be taken to a resource page that we maintain. Uh, and it, it has links to various presentations and white papers and published papers that we put together. Uh, we also provide access to all of the demonstration data that the Bureau has published and we link it up with the 2010 summary data to make it easy to compare the two products. And that is available at nhgis.org. And we have a privacy protected demo files website where you, you can download all of those data files and take a look at those. Okay, excellent. Well, David, hey, thanks for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. and. Um... I know you and I will be continuing to have this conversation over the next year, if not years. Uh, and so we'll probably have you back at some point uh, to kind of give an update on where things are at. Absolutely. Yeah. And as we learn more, um, um, right, every every product that the Bureau is going to publish for 2020 has its own is going to have its own custom disclosure avoidance algorithm applied to it based on differential privacy. So we have to quickly learn and understand what, how, how to use those data. And so um, I guess it's a job um, 
security having to go down these this this path. But but every every product is going to be a little bit different, and so it's going to require you know continued research and, and, and talking about this too to to data users and to the wider community. You've been listening to the Center of Everywhere podcast, where we explore stories of rural Minnesotans who are making a difference in their communities. Rural isn't in the middle of nowhere. It is in the center of everywhere.